Now that a federal judge has made the federal mask mandate null and void, some travelers are celebrating and others are worrying. Coming up, the latest on the mask policies and the trouble President Biden faces in appealing the mask decision or letting it stand. It's Tuesday, April 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we speak with a woman who lives and works in Moscow about what life in Russia looks like since the country invaded Ukraine. You see all these new laws, they closed all like media. You just need to live in this alternative universe. Also an attack on a boys' school in Afghanistan's capital has left several students dead and wounded. It's the latest in sectarian violence against Shia Muslims since the Taliban took control last year. It's 4.01. News headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Ukraine's industrial heartland is in the grip of what Kyiv and Moscow are both describing as a new phase in their war. While Russian attacks intensify in eastern Ukraine, NPR's Dave Blanchard reports on deal-making underway to at least reduce the bloodshed. Ukraine and Russia have been at a standstill for several days when it comes to establishing humanitarian corridors for civilians out of combat zones. But Ukrainian officials announced today the two countries have agreed to a new prisoner exchange. Ukraine received 60 soldiers and 16 civilians in the deal. No numbers were given on how many Russians were exchanged. Ukrainian leaders also announced today they abandoned the city of Krimina to Russian forces. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia has begun the battle for Donbass in eastern Ukraine. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, also says the offensive has started in the east. Though U.S. defense officials warn, the most intense fighting has yet to start. Dave Blanchard, NPR News, Kyiv, Ukraine. The U.S. says Russia is increasing capabilities for sustainment for larger battles to come. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby speaks to the urgency to get more help to Ukraine. We're doing the best we can uh, to focus on, A, the kinds of capabilities we know they need and that they say they want and are using. B, secondary to that, to try to get them systems that they don't need a lot of startup time for, that they can put in the field almost immediately. Uh, And short of that, where we can't meet one or two to be able to provide some level of familiarization and or training as required. Meanwhile, Washington's also focused on China's military threat to allies in Asia. It's alarmed by China's new security agreement with the Solomon Islands. The State Department spokesman says the pact could enable China to deploy military forces to the Solomon Islands. The White House says it's sending two U.S. officials to the South Pacific nation this week. While some travelers are celebrating a federal judge's ruling ending the federal mask mandate for travel, Public health experts warn it could lead to an increase in more severe cases of COVID-19. NPR's David Shaper reports that those concerns are not limited to air travel. Julia Raifman of Boston University School of Public Health says while air filtration systems on planes are very good, they may not prevent the spread of COVID between unmasked passengers sitting shoulder to shoulder for hours at a time. And she's also concerned about what the end of the mask mandate will mean to mass transit riders. I think this really um, puts people at high risk for people who have children under the age of two who are too young to be vaccinated, too young to wear a mask and at high risk of severe COVID. Uh, It really puts them in a challenging position. For now, transit agencies in Chicago, Seattle, New York and many other cities still require masks on buses and trains, but masks are now optional on systems in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., among others. David Shaper, NPR News. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials announced just moments ago that the MBTA will lift its mask mandate on public transit system effective immediately. That applies to all customers except for the ride paratransit service. Masks will still be required on the ride. The change happened after a judge yesterday threw out the federal government's face covering mandate for airplanes and mass transit. Governor Charlie Baker said today that one reason the change can take place is that there is stronger guidance at this stage in the pandemic about who should wear a mask and when. We've been pretty good as a commonwealth about giving people space if they feel they need to wear a mask. Other transportation agencies have also made the move today to drop the mask mandate. That includes transit systems in Worcester and the Pioneer Valley, also Amtrak and Logan Airport. President Biden is in swing state New Hampshire to tout the effect of new infrastructure spending. Today, Biden visited Portsmouth Harbor. The bipartisan infrastructure bill he signed last year will provide nearly $2 billion to dredge the harbor. He says that'll make it easier for large ships to access the port and bring goods into the state. Instead of turning away business, we're sending a message. This port is open for business and will be for a long time. Today was Biden's second visit to New Hampshire since last November. It comes as the Democratic Party is considering whether to shake up its presidential primary calendar. Traditionally, New Hampshire is held the first in the nation primary. If you've got a trip to the Registry of Motor Vehicles planned this week, you're not alone. The state is warning that customer volume is high because a lot of people are off for the school vacation week. The registry says to save yourself a long wait, you should check to see if the transaction you need can be done on the website. For business that cannot be done online, the registry says you should go online to schedule your in-person appointment. In the forecast, just have some showers this afternoon, some sunshine, some clouds, all three in some cases, depending on where you are. Overnight tonight, still on the windy side, partly cloudy, temperatures about 40 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine with highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Well, that didn't take long. Good morning, America. The major mass reversal. The federal mass mandate for travelers is over as masks come off on planes, trains, airports. By Tuesday morning, less than 24 hours after a federal judge struck down the CDC's mask mandate for public transportation, videos like this one appeared on social media. The Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. That's a crew member on a flight announcing the change to applause. The nation's largest airlines dropped their mask requirements just hours after a federal judge ruled the CDC had overstepped its legal authority. That judge was appointed by former President Trump. Her decision cleared the way for masks to come off elsewhere, too. Rideshare company Uber announcing overnight it is dropping mask mandates for drivers and riders. Airlines and ride-hailing companies seem pretty happy to dispense with the mandates as quickly as possible. After all, the FAA received nearly 6,000 reports of unruly airline passenger incidents last year, an all-time high. And more than 70% of those incidents 
were caused by mask conflicts. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. That was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Monday, reminding everyone that the mask mandate had been set to expire this week anyway. That was, of course, before the CDC sought to extend the mandate by two weeks in the face of the BA2 subvariant. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. As you know, this just came out this afternoon, so right now... The Department All right, we'll get into the political stakes with NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith in a moment. But first, how much power does the CDC have, and what does that mean for future pandemics? Well, to answer that question, let's bring in, let's bring in Selena Simmons-Duffin and Maria Godoy of NPR's Science Desk to talk about both the science and the policy at the center of all of this. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Hi. All right, Selena, let's start with you. Can you just talk about this federal district court decision that came down yesterday? Like, tell us a little bit about the case and what the specific ruling is. Right. So this challenge was filed last July, and it came from an organization called the Health Freedom Defense Fund, which is based in Idaho. But other than that, there's very little public information about it. Um, Also in the complaint were two women who have anxiety when they fly. So they argued that the masks made their anxiety worse, and that's not one of the conditions that's exempted from the requirement. So these plaintiffs attacked the mask rules on all sorts of different fronts in their complaint. And the district court judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell, basically agreed with all of their objections. She found it was unlawful and vacated the rule for the whole country. For the whole country. Okay, Maria, as we heard earlier, airlines, you know, like even in the middle of flights, made announcements to people saying they no longer had to wear masks. And I'll be getting on a plane this week. I'm just wondering, what is the risk right now of being exposed for those of us who are traveling on public transportation? Well, let's start by talking about air travel, because Mm -hmm. airplanes themselves have really good air filtration systems when they're in flight. But the ventilation isn't so great on those tightly packed tunnels you use to get on the plane. And the same goes for when you're sitting on the tarmac. I've seen aerosols experts post photos on Twitter of their own air travels. They're using carbon dioxide monitors to show just how poor the ventilation can be on a plane just before takeoff. The good news is that once you're in the air, that filtration system is on. Dr. Edward Nardell is an expert in airborne disease transmission at Harvard. He says the air on airplanes is compartmentalized in such a way that you're really just sharing air with people in the few rows around you, not the whole plane. If you're immediately next to somebody who is highly infectious, your best protection is is a mask and a tight-fitting one at that, rather than depending on the ventilation. In other words, airplane air can be good, but he's going to keep wearing a tight-fitting mask when he travels. That means a respirator mask like an N95, KN95, or KF94. Okay. Well, what about travel on, say, like buses or ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft? Well, Nardell says research prior to the pandemic found ventilation on buses can be pretty bad in some cases. That's not always true. It depends on the bus, but certainly crowding doesn't help. Opening windows can help, but that's not always possible on a bus. So he strongly suggests you keep wearing a mask in that situation. As for ride-sharing services, as you mentioned earlier, Uber said today it will no longer require drivers or passengers to mask up on rides. Right. Okay. Well, you know, one argument among people who wanted this requirement to be gone is that, you know, they were saying people who are vulnerable or worried can just wear their own mask themselves. Can you just explain for us why that is not equivalent to everyone wearing masks on public transit? 
Well, look, we know one-way masking is highly protective, but I can't stress this enough. You need to be wearing a respirator. I'm not talking about cloth masks, which really don't do much against Omicron. Surgical masks are a step up, but really, if you want to be protected, you need a respirator. Mm-hmm. Respirators can't completely eliminate the risk of getting infected, but they make a big difference. And you protect yourself further by getting vaccinated and boosted with Omicron. The evidence shows you really need that third shot. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, protection protection would be more if everyone were wearing a mask. Well, Selena, I know that you have been talking to some, to some public health and legal experts who are looking at this ruling, and they're saying this ruling's kind of just sort of pretty out there. Why is that? Well, as you mentioned, the judge in this case was confirmed and nominated by President Trump. This was all very recent, and she was given a rating of unqualified by the American Bar Association when she was nominated because of, quote, the short time she has actually practiced law and her lack of meaningful trial experience. So the health law experts I've talked with say her opinion in this case is just very poorly reasoned. Erin Fusay-Brown, who teaches law at Georgia State University, told me it reads like one of her first-year law students' final exam. It reads like someone who had decided the case and then tried to dress it up as legal reasoning without actually doing the legal reasoning. So as an example, Fuse Brown told me, sanitation is a public health term that broadly means taking steps to prevent the spread of a disease. But in this opinion, Judge Kimball Mizell interpreted the word sanitation to just mean physically cleaning. She says, given that sanitation means to clean something, to destroy disease particles, then CDC can't just ask people to wear masks because it doesn't literally destroy the virus to, to pass it through a mask. It just seemed crazy to me to, re- to read the statute that way. So where does all of this leave the CDC in future outbreaks like the ongoing BA2? In the short term, Fuse Brown told me this really ties the agency's hands. And she says it raises its own questions of who should have power over public health rules. Even if we're skeptical about agencies or even about Congress's ability to make good judgments in this time, we certainly do not want these decisions to be in the hands of a single unelected judge. She says the judge didn't open any doors for CDC to come back and change the mask requirement. She just declared it vacated and unlawful, period. All right. That is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin and Maria Godoy. Thank you to both of you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to bring in NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith to talk through the political stakes here. Hey, Tam. Hey. All right. So White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called this federal court decision disappointing. What do you think the administration's next move is going to be? We don't know yet. Saki told reporters on Air Force One today that the Department of Justice is taking its time to figure out next steps. But she made clear that no decision had been made yet. Uh, the president was asked today whether people should continue to wear masks on planes. And he said, quote, that's up to them. Uh, for the administration, there is a concern about letting this stand as a legal precedent. There's also a concern about being seen as rolling over on something that public health experts say could be really problematic down the line. Um, And politically, you know, the White House has been trying to move into the next phase of the pandemic. And President Biden has been taking a lot of heat from progressives who are concerned that he's now putting politics ahead of public health. Well, what about the politics here? Because, I mean, there were videos of people celebrating on planes. There was cheering and clapping. How much would you say that reflects actual public opinion? Because aren't there a lot of people out there who wanted these mass mandates in place? 
Like everything with the pandemic, it's polarized. Democrats are overwhelmingly in favor of the mandate continuing, and Republicans are overwhelmingly opposed. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll found earlier this month that 51 percent, so a narrow majority, thought the mandate should be allowed to expire, and 48 percent said it should continue. And this makes the politics for the White House sort of a no-win situation. Liberals are upset and the White House doesn't get credit from independents or from conservatives for lifting the mandate because it came from a judicial ruling. Saki insisted that, as she often does, this is not being driven by politics at the White House. Well, I've seen those videos. Anecdotes are not data, right? Um, and certainly that does tell a part of the story. Um, but we don't make these decisions based on politics or based on the political whims on a plane or even in a poll. But I would note in polls um, they, in, in data, lengthier data, there are still a lot of people in this country who still want to have masks. And she was speaking on the one airplane where the administration still has total control. Air Force One, uh, the White House had asked that everyone today continue to mask up. Right. Air Force One, quite possibly now the only plane in America where everyone will be wearing masks. Okay, so I guess the question here is, even if the Justice Department does appeal this lower court decision, do you think that there's any going back to universal masking at this point? What do you think? The mask requirement had been hanging on by a thread with many passengers on public transportation and planes barely complying. And this is just the latest example of the pandemic moving into a new phase where community sacrifice in the name of public health is being replaced by individual choices. Zeke Emanuel, a professor of public health management who consults regularly with the White House, told me that this is a problematic time. It's two years into the pandemic and it seems as though we have hit the wall uh, where people are no longer willing to make those sacrifices. And he's really discouraged by that. All right. That is NPR's Tamara Keith at the White House. Thank you, Tam. You're welcome. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we'll revisit a family who fled their home in western Ukraine to settle elsewhere in the country. In business news, fewer homes are selling in Massachusetts, but those that are selling are going for higher prices. That's the finding of a report today on March home sales from the Massachusetts Association of Realtors. It found just over 3,000 homes in the state sold last month. That's down 12 percent from March of last year. The median selling price rose 13 percent last month to nearly $550,000. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Investors today shook off a sluggish start to the week. The Dow picked up nearly 1.5% today, 500 points to close at 34,911. S&P rose a little over 1.5% to finish at 44.62. And the Nasdaq picked up more than 2% to end the session at 13,620. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Celebrity Series, presenting Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Christian McBride, and Brian Blade, a mood swing reunion, April 24th at Symphony Hall. 
Some showers around this afternoon and evening, partly cloudy overnight tonight, windy, but no rain predicted, lows about 40. Tomorrow, sunshine, still breezy, up around 57 degrees. This is WBUR in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Three blasts rocked the Afghan capital, Kabul, on Tuesday. They appeared to target schools, and six people were killed. ISIS and other militants have struck schools and students in the past, but this was the first time since the Taliban swept to power in August. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad. Mohammad Rezaei, a 21-year-old physics teacher, told NPR from the hospital that he was wounded by the blast that struck near his institution, the Mumtaz Educational Centre. He says many of his students had head and back injuries. At least one other blast struck near the Abdurrahim Shahid school as students were leaving their classes. The next few minutes and hours were crushingly familiar to Afghans. Twitter users shared images of bloodied school books and cleaners hosing down sidewalks. An aid group, Emergency, that runs free hospitals, said they received 10 wounded teenagers and one victim dead on arrival. The United Nations condemned the attack, as did neighbouring Pakistan, and the large aid group Save the Children. The schools are in a Kabul area dominated by ethnic Hazaras who are mainly Shiites. Militants have frequently targeted them in the past. Last year in April, attackers killed more than 85 girls who were leaving a secondary school in the same area. It was one of the worst attacks in Kabul in decades of conflict. Rizayi, the physics teacher, says this attack should not have happened. The Taliban boast of how they've secured Afghanistan, and certainly militant attacks are far less frequent now. But it's no consolation for parents, who again will be wondering if it's safe to send their children to school. Their boys, at least. The Taliban have not allowed girls to return to secondary school since they swept to power eight months ago. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. There are now more than six million people who have been displaced from their homes inside Ukraine. And as Russian forces prepare for another massive front in the east, that number is expected to grow. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny has been in Ukraine talking with families who had to flee and are struggling to adjust even in safer parts of the country. I first met the Lysenko family a day after they'd fled Chernihiv, a northern city in Ukraine that at the beginning of the war was under constant bombardment. Here's what they told me four weeks ago of their escape. Sometimes Russians along the roads with weapons. At times, they'd have to abandon the cars and run into a nearby field. Or get down in the car and try to hide. I've kept in touch with the family of four. Olha, a psychologist, her husband Ihor, who works in IT, and their two kids, Varya and Igor. They made it to Lviv, a major western city packed with other internally displaced people. But it was overcrowded. So they headed an hour and a half north to a city called Chervonograd, 
a mining town, much smaller than where they're from. We're meeting for lunch a few minutes from their new apartment. Are you hungry at all? Yeah, they always hungry. They're staying in a distant relative's empty apartment. And after all they've been through, a quiet apartment with heat, electricity, and hot water is incredible. Yesterday, I took a hot shower, says Igor, who's nine, and it was awesome. Their house back in Chernihiv actually survived the bombardment. They're still in touch with their relatives who stayed. But their city is heavily damaged, without working infrastructure, heat, electricity, schools, and hospitals. It's in no shape to actually live right now with kids. They will go back someday, they tell me, but they're focused right now on healing. Ihor tells me with each day that passes, his heart gets a little colder. Every day of war makes you harder, less emotional. Uh, I feel less human-like. There are still some moments where he feels emotion, though. Then I see some uh, destroyed uh, village uh, on the road to my village and uh, cry some in some silent corner. And he's been spending time back at work recently. There's not much to do because so many people are without steady internet or electricity. Many stayed in Chernihiv. But it's something. Olha, a psychologist, has started to offer sessions online, but she's taking it slow. She still has days where she's overcome with grief. She knows they were lucky. They're still alive, so are their relatives. But it's still a big trauma, she says. The place she went on a first date, her favorite park, all her memories are destroyed. There's a heaviness to that, she says. We'll never have the life we had before. <sighs> At the beginning of the war, Olha remembers thinking about things she'd wished she'd done more of in her life. Painting and drawing were at the top of that list. As soon as they moved into this apartment and she felt like things were settled, she ordered pastels and paper. She shows us some of her artwork she's made over the past week. It's not so good. She's modest. It's actually really good. She's focused mostly on fruit. An apple, it's first. It's a cluster of grapes, a pear. She says when she's drawing, she feels a sense of safety. The war, the trauma, it all floats away. She's been trying to get the kids to do some art, too, but it's been hard to get them to focus. I am painting very, very, very rarely, Igor says, smiling. Instead, he's been playing video games, watching TV. He's acting pretty normal, Olha says, but there are cracks. Like when the waitress asks how old he is, and he replies, I am nine, but I'm a big boy because my school was bombed. Veria, who is six, is extremely outgoing, and she's having a much harder time. She's had no one to play with here, her mom says, so she's constantly approaching strangers in hopes of playing. Even while we're eating, Varya disappears for about 20 minutes. Turns out she went to sit with another family with two kids a few booths down. I ask Olha if she's allowed herself to think about the future. 
And she shakes her head, no. There is no stability for us at all, she says. What way is life going to go, she asks, staring off into the distance. But as we leave the restaurant, Ihor tells me he's finding comfort in things in the here and now. Chervonograd, the city where they're staying, sounds similar to Chernihi. Do you find yourselves kind of like looking for signs like that? Like the name is similar? Yes, yes. He tells me about the two cities' colors, red and black. They remind him of a Ukrainian folk song. The song's words are about destiny. The lyrics say, red color is love. Black color is something that must be overcome. He says, this means something. And it tells him they are exactly where they need to be. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News. Chervonograd, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox will put Nathan Navaldi on the mound tonight as the Sox welcome the Blue Jays to Fenway Park. 7-10 game time. Two more Red Sox players are on the team's COVID-19 related injury list. Catcher Christian Vasquez and utility player Jonathan Aruz. The team announced yesterday that catcher Kevin Ploiecki and two staff members tested positive for COVID. The three players will be unavailable for tonight's Sox game at Fenway against the Jays. Bruins are in St. Louis to take on the Blues. The Bruins are currently the first wild card in the Eastern Conference. It's 4.30. WBUR supporters include A Street Frames, master frame makers and museum quality picture framers with their newest location in the SOA Arts District of Boston's South End, astreetframes.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. Do you have little ones in your life? Great news! The mega-awesome, super-huge, wicked-fun podcast Playdate is returning to WBUR City Space, April 23rd and 24th. Join me, Rebecca Shear, host of WBUR's children's storytelling podcast, Circle Round, and some of our other favorite kids' podcasts for live performances, music, and activities. Tickets and more information at WBUR.org slash Circle Round. See you there! Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. It's mask optional on major airlines, Amtrak, and even Uber and Lyft. After a federal judge in Florida yesterday ruled the CDC did not follow proper rulemaking, rendering the mask requirement unlawful. President Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, told reporters aboard Air Force One the next step is under review, but masks had been mandated based on the science. When we had made this announcement, the CDC said it needed 15 days to assess the impact of an uptick in cases on hospitalizations, deaths, and hospital capacity. We feel, still feel, that is entirely reasonable based on the latest science. Uh, and public health uh, decisions shouldn't be made by the courts. Uh, they should be made by public health experts. The CDC continues to advise that people wear masks on airplanes to protect against COVID-19. The Secretary General of the United Nations is calling for a four-day humanitarian pause in fighting in Ukraine. Antonio Guterres suggested the pause begin in two days, which would be Holy Thursday in the Orthodox Church calendar. 
France is pushing for a European embargo on Russian oil. As NPR's Elner Beardsley reports, the French finance minister says his government is working to implement the embargo. Speaking on radio, finance minister Bruno Le Maire said Europe needs to go further than the ban on Russian coal decided earlier this month. He said banning oil imports would hurt Russia's ability to finance the war in Ukraine. Et quand vous voyez ce qui se passe dans le Donbass, when you see what's happening in the Donbass, said Le Maire, you see that now more than ever, we need to stop importing oil from Russia. France has been pushing for an oil ban for weeks, but other countries with heavier dependence, like Germany, have been more reluctant. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Dow gained 499 points today. The Nasdaq was up 287. The S&P 500 rose 70 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Most transportation systems in Massachusetts have dropped the requirement that passengers wear masks. This afternoon, the MBTA said it's dropping the mask mandate for nearly all services, including subways, buses, and rail. The only exception will be its paratransit service. The ride. The policy change comes after a Florida judge yesterday threw out the Biden administration's nationwide mask mandate for planes and mass transit. Amtrak, Logan Airport, and many transit authorities in Massachusetts also dropped their mask rules today. Some local health experts are criticizing the judge's ruling that threw out the mandate. Uh, Dr. Robert Duncan is an infectious disease specialist at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston the discarding of the mandate will likely cause the coronavirus to spread. From my point of view, a mask is a, uh, a great little safety device that has a uh, very small downside to it. And uh, I can tell you I'll be wearing mine when I'm doing public transportation in the near future. Duncan says masks give people a layer of protection that can help prevent infection. Cambridge-based Moderna plans to have an updated COVID-19 booster by this fall. The company says its redesigned booster would provide a better immune response against variants, including Omicron. Today, Moderna said early testing data show the newly redesigned shot seems to provide greater overall protection than the current booster. Power crews have made progress restoring electricity in the state after this morning's wind-driven rainstorm. At its peak, more than 8,000 homes and businesses were without power in pockets around the state. That number is now just under 500. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, an international gap program that helps students see the world, discover their passions, and gain important life skills. More at efgapyear.com. And Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. A combo plate in the forecast, some clouds, some sun, some sporadic showers. Overnight tonight, look for partly cloudy skies, still windy, around 40 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine, gusty winds, highs in the mid-50s. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What do Russians know about their government's war with Ukraine? What do they think about it? And how are they affected by it? Those simple questions are difficult to answer. Russia has limited communications and punished those who speak frankly. But a woman in Moscow has agreed to talk with us about her experience. Her first name is Anastasia. We're not using her last name because she's concerned about potential consequences of speaking out. She has a friend who learned the risks firsthand. One of my friends, she just wrote something in social media and uh, she has her like image in that media and then she was found by that image in metro because there are cameras there so basically they found her and uh, she got arrested for a few days and was she ultimately released or charged with a crime what happened uh she was charged with some sum of money but uh, it was not a pleasant experience at all of course and uh, yeah how has your daily life changed since the war began? There are so many feelings every day. You feel angry, you feel frustrated. Uh, you can't work or you can't focus on anything, especially uh, in the very beginning. It was just just frustration and um, not knowing what has just happened and what will be next. And apart from that, I mean... Uh, my routine didn't change much, but I have some issues with my work, with my flat, big uh, stuff in my life that was a fundamental one. What has the war meant for your job? I understand you work for an international company. Yeah, and we produce some like essential goods, I would say. But currently it's just uh, <laughs> all under question because our company have recently announced that they want to sell their business in Russia. Wow. What would that mean for you? We still have uh, like our salaries until the end of the year. So, I mean, uh, by the end of the year, it uh, will somehow change and probably like the new owner or good like, um, I forget the word, like... Uh, like lay people, people off, you mean? Yes, yes, that's exactly. Would you ever consider leaving Russia? Yes. I mean, I thought about it before, but when it started, it was like my first thought that I need to leave right now. And I was pretty worried that uh, the borders will be closed. Uh, and I still mm. worry about it. And And was your thought, I need to leave because of financial consequences of sanctions or the risk of being locked up if you criticize the war or just a moral position like where did that come from i mean it was uh, all of these uh, thoughts because honestly in the first days it was mostly because uh, of my moral position i guess because of you feel like trapped in russia you see all these policemen you see all these new laws and how they try to tell you how to live, how to breathe, what to say. They closed all like media, they closed Instagram, Facebook, and you just started to feel like you're removed from all the world. You remind me of some analysis I saw early in the war that said Vladimir Putin is destroying two countries, Ukraine and Russia. D does it feel that extreme? In my opinion, no one can get anything from the wall because it's like just what what can you get as a person from it you can only get hurt and get worse uh, because of it so 
yes, our ordinary life is changed dramatically and also the perspective living in Russia, even like from an ordinary person's standpoint is not a good one because yeah, all these economical uh, consequences, they will be drastic. I, I'm sure about it. Is there anything you would like Americans to know about what it's like to be in Russia right now? It's uh, really essential to understand that a lot of people, uh, they do not support uh, our government. They also feel trapped from both sides, I, I guess, uh, because here you just in a constant fear, because if you say something or do something, you can be arrested or like your family could be hurt. So it's really <laughs> sad. And Ukrainian people is, there are a lot of our friends or relatives somehow. So it's not like uh, they're total strangers and there are so much hate and it's, it's, it's dreadful. Anastasia, thank you for speaking with us about your experience. You're welcome. She lives and works in Moscow. As we approach one million deaths from COVID-19 in the U.S., we wanted to take a moment to remember someone who died from the virus shortly before vaccines became widely available. Dr. J. Randall or Randy Pierce lived in Morristown, Tennessee. He was a dentist so beloved, kids actually held their birthday parties at his office. He had patients for over 35 years who were extremely dedicated, like family and friends for him. His daughter, Kimberly Peterson, says he always knew how to make patients feel at ease. And he was always looking for ways to serve others. That's part of why Dr. Pierce got into forensic odontology, the study of using dental records to identify people after death. His attitude towards that was, again, service. You know, that he was helping to bring closure to families with pretty tragic situations. So he was very gifted with that as well. When the 9-11 attacks happened, he went to New York to help identify human remains. When he came back, Kimberly says... He was just very shaken. He he hardly spoke. She still vividly remembers how he smelled. The plastic and the toxic stuff that was up in the air was in his pores and in his skin and in his hair. And it just was this kind of sickening, sweet, odd smell. About a year afterwards, he developed a persistent cough. Like many other 9-11 responders, Pierce was diagnosed with COPB from the dust and debris he breathed in from ground zero. So when COVID hit, Pierce knew he was vulnerable. He took extra care to follow all the pandemic rules. But on a brief coffee break at work, he contracted the virus. He was hospitalized shortly thereafter. On Christmas Day, Kimberly got the call from the hospital that she had been dreading. In full hazmat gear, she and her family visited for a final goodbye. He was very swollen, full of fluid. It didn't look like my dad. And uh, when I sat down on his bed, and I remember touching his chest, putting my hand on his chest, and it, it felt like a waterbed. Pierce had refused a ventilator, saying he wanted it to go to someone else who needed it. He was, in his final moments, thinking of everyone but himself. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty powerful. During this last visit, Kimberly reflected on the connection they shared. She's technically his stepdaughter, but they became best friends. One of the last things we said to each other was that um, that we chose each other. You know, that was the good thing, is that we, 
we chose to be father and daughter. J. Randall Pierce died on Christmas Day, 2020. He was 69 years old. If you'd like us to memorialize a loved one you've lost to COVID-19, find us on Twitter at NPRATC. There's a pinned tweet at the top of the page. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Now to Ohio and what could be a historic military trial. Opening arguments began today in the case of Major General William Cooley. The two-star general is charged with abusive sexual contact, and the trial comes as the military faces increased scrutiny over how it handles sexual misconduct. From member station WYSO, Lila Goldstein reports, and this story contains descriptions of sexual assault. This morning, in a small courtroom at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base outside Dayton, prosecutors, military defense counsel, and the accused gathered. All were in uniform. Major General Cooley is accused of kissing and inappropriately touching the victim without her consent. He pleaded not guilty. On the stand today, the alleged victim, a civilian, said she was terrified when Cooley pinned her in the car. But no matter the outcome of the case, the trial itself is remarkable. An Air Force general has never made it this far in court-martial proceedings. It's a reflection of the phrase, different spanks for different ranks, a sense that higher-up officials are held to a different standard than the enlisted. Rachel Van Landingham is a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel who teaches at Southwestern Law School. She argues that structural issues undermine the integrity of the military justice system. For instance, it's commanders, not prosecutors, who decide who will be charged. Military commanders are not going to charge other commanders with anything. They take care of each other. And so there's really, um, the the system is biased at its core. I think it's still very much an, um, an older white male club. She also points to the dearth of women and people of color in leadership and says that contributes to a culture where senior leaders are not held accountable particularly when it comes to sexual misconduct. Retired Air Force Colonel Don Christensen heads the nonprofit group Protect Our Defenders. It's like having your friend decide whether or not you're prosecuted. And, you know, no shock, your friend decides not to prosecute you. He says the military culture can have an effect on all these officers involved in the trial. You're brought up in the military where generals are gods, and now you have a god on trial. Uh, There's going to be uh, an inclination, I think, to give this general more deference than you would give an airman basic. Rachel Van Landingham says Congress has been pushing for reforms. Legislation in the National Defense Authorization Act changes who gets to decide whether someone is prosecuted for crimes related to sexual misconduct. So for the first time, Congress has rested, has plucked away prosecutorial discretion for 11 discrete offenses from these commanders and given them given these offenses to independent, supposedly, military lawyers that are independent from the chain of command. Defense attorney Daniel Conway says that congressional pressure for reform has an impact on this case. He says it's part of why the defense decided not to go with a jury trial, where jurors would have to be senior members of the military. It's difficult to pick a a jury from a pool of officers whose career progression depends on the approval of a Senate that expends significant energy excoriating them about sexual assaults on an annual basis. Joshua Kastenberg is a retired Air Force judge advocate and teaches at the University of New Mexico School of Law. He says this case will be closely watched by the younger generation of military officers. I don't think the change will be overnight. It never is. 
but it's a step in the right direction. If convicted, Cooley could face dismissal from the military and considerable prison time. For NPR News, I'm Lila Goldstein in Dayton. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a former Israeli prime minister talks about his book, Searching for Peace, a Memoir of Israel. Red Sox start up a series with Toronto tonight at Fenway. Nathan Navaldi pitches. Bruins are on the road in St. Louis. And three former patriots are up for consideration for the Pats Hall of Fame. A nominating committee today named Mike Vrabel, Logan Mankins, and Vince Wilfork as finalists. All three were part of the team's undefeated regular season in 2007. Fans can cast a vote on the Patriots' website. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Concord Museum. Experience history and art in the delightful new exhibit, Alive with Birds, William Brewster in Concord. Concordmuseum.org. And the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Coming to WBUR City Space on Friday, April 29th, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Oliwola MCs in an evening of poetry readings from Boston's up-and-coming poets. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. A good breeze this afternoon and overnight tonight. Wind gusts of about 28 miles an hour tonight. Then for tomorrow, look for sunshine. Should be a nice day with highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR, 52 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. And the Handel and Haydn Society, with Haydn's The Creation, Harry Christopher's final concerts as artistic director, April 29th and May 1st, handelandhaydn.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Our next guest spent three years as the Prime Minister of Israel. Later, he went to prison. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert was convicted of corruption. Olmert has always said he's innocent, but he's still had to serve 16 months in jail. And that's where he wrote most of his book, Searching for Peace, a Memoir of Israel. It recently came out in English, and in it, he reflects on his long political career, which took him to the White House, the Kremlin. He tried to negotiate peace between Israelis and Palestinians, all of that relevant to the news of today. I spoke with Olmert last week before the recent clashes at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. He was at home in Tel Aviv. We began by talking about his time in jail. It's not the best possible way to uh, spend your time, if that's what you want to know. Hmm. Well, at the bottom line... 
you may be president, uh, prime minister, or an ordinary citizen. When the court decides that you are guilty, you are guilty. And you have to bow your head, accept the judgment, and uh, behave accordingly, which I did. You were washing the floors just like any other prisoner. Absolutely. I can't complain about the circumstances, the conditions. I had the premises there that uh, allowed me to just sit in uh, a room where I could concentrate and write my book, and that's what I did. You reflect in the book on your long career. There were many formative events, including your decade as mayor of Jerusalem. And this Mm. was during a period of intense violence and suffering uh, for both Mm. Israelis and Palestinians in the early 2000s. You personally went to the aftermath of many Palestinian bombings in your city. You witnessed horrific scenes. But then you eventually came to change your views. You came to believe in compromise with the Palestinians. So I want to ask, how did you come to hold such different views from the right-wing political establishment that you were a part of? So when I became mayor of Jerusalem, I found out while I was mayor of Jerusalem, maybe because of the experience that I had in Jerusalem, that the dream of controlling millions of Palestinians within the uh, state of Israel, without uh, giving them uh, the equal rights, and that somehow we could make an arrangement that will be seen like we are treating them on a reasonable, honest basis, while we don't, that somehow this built-in contradiction can't hold, and that the sooner we separate from the Palestinians, the better we are. This is not an outcome of the pain of suffering from terror. This is because I thought that from a fundamental moral basis, it's either you are integrating all of the Palestinians into the state of Israel and give them full political rights and civil rights. Which I don't think you or any Israeli leader Which we don't want to to do. do. We don't want to do because this will change completely the nature of the state of Israel from a Jewish state into something uh, binational state, something entirely different. So the alternative is not to occupy the territories and uh, deny the Palestinians of these rights, but to just to separate, which is to pull out from most of the territories. Let's talk about that alternative. At the very end of your tenure as prime minister, after you had already announced you would resign uh, because of the corruption allegations, you made a peace offer to the Palestinian leadership. This was 2008. The, the fundamental details was known a year before I retired, which is a long time. We could have concluded everything. You presented some of your the final... Palestinians um, didn't respond. You presented some of your, your final offers months after you had announced your future resignation. But I want to talk about that peace offer because, as you mentioned, Israel has been controlling millions of Palestinians in the occupied territories. They want independence. You proposed leaving most of the occupied West Bank, even dividing Jerusalem between the sides. My question is, can you imagine an Israeli leader willing to go that far ever again? I'm not sure, because I don't know if in the next 50 years you'll have an Israeli leader who will have the guts to do what I did. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, beyond leadership, Mr. Olmert, I mean, let's look at the facts on the ground. How do you even disentangle Israeli settlements and Palestinian 
areas anymore. Is this not impossible? It's not as bad as it appears sometimes to be or is understood to be by the rhetoric that everyone uses each for his own uh, needs. If we withdraw from 95.6% of the territories, we can relocate and settle all of the Jews that live in the West Bank today and empty all the rest of the territory for the Palestinians to live there and to uh, build their country. It needs courage, it needs uh, imagination, it needs the determination you know, of someone holding that position of leadership, of prime ministership, to really want to do it. Mr. Elmer, let's turn to another conflict that the current Israeli prime minister is trying to mediate. The war in Ukraine. You yourself have been to the Kremlin. You've met President Putin. You've worked with him. What was your interaction like? My, my interaction with Putin was very good. Last time uh, I saw him was actually after I retired already. He invited me to have a dinner with him in his home, in his private home. But I have to say two things. Number one, I entirely, entirely disagree and criticize what he did, and I think this is uh, horrible and uh, there is no question about it. The other thing I have to say is that from time immemorial, he is, will not tolerate the uh, positioning of American missiles on the border of Russia in uh, countries which were part of the Warsaw Pact in the past. The question, of course, is that, number one, was there a real immediate, uh, tangible threat to the security of Russia? And the other thing is that, was this the only way to deal with what appeared to him to be a threat, or there could have been other ways of dealing other than brutal, violent invasion that bring about the uh, death of innocent civilians? And... uh, It appears that uh, he chose the wrong way. Well, what advice would you give Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who is serving as an intermediator between Russia and Ukraine? I don't think that he really is an intermediary uh, between Russia and Ukraine, but he has been helpful in passing communication between Russia and uh, and the Ukraine, as as uh, the Turks did, providing the premises for a couple of meetings of representatives of both sides. But I'll tell you something: if he feels that he has a chance of making a difference, then he should try to make it. Now, how exactly to do it? Uh, that something that, when and if he will ask me, I will tell him. That is former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert speaking to us from Tel Aviv. His book, Searching for Peace, a Memoir of Israel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages, More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Easy Cater, 
committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by TD Garden, tenor Andrea Bocelli with songs from his album Believe, plus crossover hits and love songs, December 10th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Carr-Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russian officials say they've begun a new phase of their invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian officials report fierce clashes across a wide front in the east and south. And meanwhile, Russia's latest weapon in the disinformation war, fake fact-checkers. It's Tuesday, April 19th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead this hour, tourism in big western states rely on visitors who drive. An economist who tracks tourist spending expects fewer Americans to hit the road this summer. Gas prices will, will dampen it a little bit, but I don't think it's going to create some devastating impact of reduction in travel. Also, the Sunshine State, Florida, is set to dramatically reduce incentives for rooftop solar. Critics say that'll not only hurt customers, it'll cost jobs in one of Florida's fastest growing industries. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Secretary General of the United Nations is calling for a four-day humanitarian pause in Ukraine to coincide with Orthodox Easter. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports many Security Council diplomats are echoing the call for a truce. Russia has intensified its offensive in eastern Ukraine just as Orthodox Christians prepare to mark Easter. And U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says there's been an intense concentration of forces and firepower. The onslaught and terrible toll on civilians we have seen so far could pale in comparison to the horror that lies ahead. This cannot be allowed to happen. He says the four-day Orthodox Easter period starting Thursday should be a moment to unite around saving lives. He's calling for a pause in fighting to allow civilians to evacuate areas where fighting is likely to intensify. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Even as Russia has begun increasing its levels of assaults against targets in Ukraine, the U.S. is estimating Russia has lost some of its combat ability. Pentagon officials say they estimate Russia's lost about 25 percent of its combat power that it initially sent into Ukraine. Capturing the mostly Russian-speaking Donbass region would give Russian leader Vladimir Putin a major win, especially essentially slicing the country in two while also depriving it of its key industrial assets. Home building activity got an unexpected boost last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports on the latest figures from the Commerce Department. Housing starts rose by three-tenths of one percent last month, surprising forecasters who'd predicted a decrease. All the jump in construction activity was in multifamily housing. Builders broke ground on fewer single-family homes than the month before. Housing permits showed a similar pattern. Overall permits were up last month, but permits for single-family houses declined by nearly five percent. 
Rising mortgage rates are making homes less affordable for some families. Mortgage giant Freddie Mac says the average rate on a 30-year fixed loan climbed to 5% last week, up from just over 3% a year earlier. Rates are likely to go even higher as the Federal Reserve tries to crack down on inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The battle between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and giant Walt Disney World appears to be escalating. DeSantis threatening to repeal the law, allowing the entertainment giant to operate as a private self-governing entity over its properties in the state. DeSantis has issued a proclamation allowing the GOP-controlled State House to take up the matter of ending the special provisions during a special session. Republican governor expressing anger at what he's called Disney's increasingly, quote, woke policies, including the company's opposition to a new law barring classroom discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity with young children. An update on Wall Street, the Dow rose 499 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Face masks are no longer required on most of the MBTA system or at Logan Airport. The state's Department of Transportation, the MBTA, and Massport announced the change in policy today. There are a couple of exceptions. Masks will still be required on the T's paratransit service, the ride, and Logan officials say they may still be required for international flights. The decision today comes after a federal judge's ruling yesterday that voids the national mask mandate that covered air travel and other forms of public transportation. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says if people feel more comfortable wearing a face mask while riding the T, they can continue to do so. A poll finds Attorney General Maura Healey has a 45-point lead in the Democratic race for governor. The UMass Lowell poll finds 62 percent of residents who would likely vote in the primary support Healey. 17 percent support State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. The poll was taken this month and has a margin of error of nearly 4 percent. The primaries in September. The Biden administration is making federal funds available to several counties in Massachusetts to cover some of the costs of the response to a winter storm back in January. Yesterday, the administration approved a federal disaster declaration for Bristol, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Suffolk counties for the two-day nor'easter. The storm dumped more than two feet of snow in some areas. The money can be used for emergency work, repairs, and snow removal costs. And an Ohio company has been permanently banned from selling securities in Massachusetts. Secretary of State Bill Galvin filed a consent order against Realpha Asset Management, accusing them of bait-and-switch schemes. Galvin said they used fictitious photos and addresses of vacation properties to encourage investors, giving the appearance of inflated real estate holdings and profits. The company will be required to offer restitution and pay fines. In the forecast, at least partly cloudy skies tonight, windy and dry. Overnight lows about 40. Tomorrow, a nice day. Sunny, still breezy, up around 57. 52 degrees now in Boston at 506. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Russian officials now say they've begun a new phase of their invasion of Ukraine. And Ukrainian officials are reporting fierce clashes across a wide front in their countries east and south. NPR's Brian Mann is in the southern city of Odessa. Hi, Brian. Hi, Ari. We had been hearing for days now that a major Russian offensive was coming. Is this it? 
There is clearly an escalation with more violence, especially across the East. Uh, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, gave an interview where he said this is a new stage of the operation. He described it as a very important moment. But it's not actually clear the Russians have launched their big push yet. A senior U.S. defense official told NPR today this still appears to be the prelude, kind of a strategic ramp up that might lead to an even larger offensive. But there is a significant battle underway over hundreds of kilometers involving tanks, artillery, soldiers. A spokesman for the Ukrainian military, uh, Colonel Alexander Matinsinsuk, described the situation through an interpreter this afternoon. We see intensification of offensive actions of the Russian army along the whole front line in the east of Ukraine. So a dangerous moment, Ukrainian officials said today they also expect bombing to continue across much of the country. And what impact is this having on Ukrainians in those cities that are being hit? Ukrainian officials say they're holding the line. We're not seeing Russians break through anywhere, though a Ukrainian official has confirmed one town, Krumina, in eastern Ukraine has been seized by Russian troops. The Russians are also just causing a lot of havoc, Ari, with these strikes. I spoke this afternoon with Dmitro Pletenchuk. He's a military officer I met a few days ago when I visited Mykolaiv. That's a city near the front lines here in the south, a city that was shelled again heavily last night. He told me they hit electricity lines and other infrastructure in Mykolaiv. Uh, he believes Russians are trying to create a humanitarian crisis in these cities that will then bog down and distract the Ukrainian army. He also told me officials believe uh, as many as half of the people in Mykolaiv are still in the city. If that's accurate, that's roughly a quarter million people living there without water or reliable electricity with those Russian troops fighting just uh, 20 miles away. What are those civilians supposed to do now? Yeah, some people we spoke to in Mykolaiv say they plan to hunker down and shelter in place, try to ride this out. Obviously, that's a very, very dangerous thing to do. Some people are now trying to get out. Uh, my colleague Tim Mack spoke yesterday with Sergei Pritsenko. He's a restaurant owner who fled the city of Kherson with his family when fighting broke out there. He told NPR that as he moved through Russian-occupied territory, Russian soldiers forced him out of his vehicle and made him strip to show that he didn't have any Ukrainian military tattoos. After that, they did let him and his family go. He said it felt sort of magical when they made it safely to the first Ukrainian checkpoint. Uh, but as this invasion pushes forward, a lot of civilians in these cities won't be so lucky. More than 10 million people have already been displaced by this war. As you say, a lot of people are not fleeing. Why not? It's a question we've asked over and over, Ari. You know, why do people stay when the war is so close? A lot of them are elderly or have disabilities or they say they're too poor to leave. Others have businesses and homes. You know, their whole lives are in these places. So they're confronted with these terrifying choices. They can join that massive wave of refugees and displaced people or they can try to survive in their communities, in their homes, where things, yes, are dangerous, but they also feel familiar. Ukraine is such a large country. You are in Odessa, where there's not violence right now. What is the mood there? You know, Ukrainians we've been talking to today, they're obviously watching this escalation with a lot of horror. They're terrified for their sons and their husbands who are dug in, fighting against the Russians. But morale is really high. You know, people I talk to say over and over, they think they can stop Russia. There is some reason for optimism. You know, Ukraine's army did stop the Russians once, 
but military experts I've spoken to over the last week say this phase of the war is going to be a much harder test for this country and for Ukraine's military. It's NPR's Brian Mann in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. The city of Shanghai in China remains under strict lockdown because of COVID, and it's not the only one. 45 Chinese cities have some sort of lockdown measure in place as the country struggles to contain the highly infectious Omicron variant. NPR's Emily Feng reports on the cost these measures are having. A blood-red sun is setting in Beijing over thousands of workers walking through checkpoints. They're headed back home to the city's satellite suburbs in Hebei, the province next door. Tiling, a tech worker, is among those who live in cheaper housing across the border, then travels to Beijing each day for work. When lockdowns happened this year, The impact was huge. I was locked down in my home in the suburbs for 20 days. If I had stayed in Beijing, I would be required to quarantine for two weeks. Now the border is technically open, but only people with special permits can walk across to get to work each day. Qiling, clad in leather, opts to ride his motorcycle. <laughs> I'm trying to get around the traffic congestion, and Beijing blocks out city cars from driving in. Cars like certain trucks, for example. That means trucking logistics could be blocked with no warning in China, shutting down critical regional transport hubs. And this is happening all across the country. One tally from Beijing research firm Gavikel Dragonomics calculates cities accounting for about 50 percent of China's total economic output have some sort of lockdown measure in place. Now let's zoom out, because this congestion is happening on a global scale, too, with China at the center of it. It's like super chaos theory if you shut down you know, one ship in one place, what happens three months later? Aton Buckman is chief marketing officer for the platform Freitos, which helps small businesses book shipping freight for their goods. The problem is major ports like the one in Shanghai are also snarled up due to Chinese lockdowns. Then you also start to get the cascading dominoes falling and you see more congestion at their surrounding ports because now ships might not call at the port of Shanghai and you have three to six months of echoes in the system that just don't go away. 90% of their clients say they've been impacted by delays and higher shipping costs, even if their factories or logistics are not even directly in Shanghai. Clients like Dan Otto, vice president at Code & Quill, a high-end stationary e-commerce company. The port of Shanghai is is currently going through some pretty extreme congestion. Uh, Goods that would have otherwise gone out of Shanghai are now going through Ningbo. So even the ports that may be less affected by lockdowns are still seeing the spillover effects. Including the port of Ningbo, where he ships his custom notebooks and planners from. For the last two years, China's zero-tolerance approach to COVID-19 meant a relatively stable operating environment. Long periods of normalcy punctuated by occasional mass testing or lockdowns across only a handful of cities. Michael Hart is president of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. When we did a survey at the end of last year, a lot of people admitted that COVID zero had been successful to that point. But China is now at the point where the time in between lockdowns could be getting shorter than the lockdowns themselves. The situation has now changed. This is different because finally China is having to deal with COVID. In that, more infectious variants are challenging this lockdown model. But the greatest cost is being borne by the most vulnerable in China. For them, the cost is not just financial. It's emotional and physical. 
One public health expert estimates about 2,000 excess diabetes deaths alone in Shanghai. In Wuhan, China's CDC estimated excess deaths from chronic disease were up more than 20 percent during its lockdown. China's zero-tolerance COVID policy likely saved lives, even at great economic cost at first. But now it could start to cost more than it saves. Emily Fang, NPR News, Beijing. Today, the Biden administration opened a new center billed as the equivalent of the National Weather Service, but for disease outbreaks. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the story. Throughout the pandemic, the coronavirus has repeatedly blindsided the nation as dangerous new variants suddenly erupted like hurricanes that seemed to come out of nowhere or tsunamis no one saw coming. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has created the Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics to try to prevent that from ever happening again. Here's CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Early on, the center will determine the outbreak risk and its potential to reach epidemic status. Just like the Weather Service can spot nor'easters and tornadoes early and issue alerts to close schools, mobilize plows, and make sure people take cover. Here's Dylan George, who's running the new center. We would try to influence decisions as big as making a new vaccine all the way down to as targeted as an individual as, should I go to the movie theater right now and is it too high a risk for me? So that's the kind of vision that we're moving forward in using this analogy for the National Weather Service. But officials acknowledge that there's a long way to go to make this a reality. First of all, the CDC has to figure out how to gather all the data it needs. And some worry the $200 million funding the center is far from enough. Bruce Gellin is at the Rockefeller Foundation's Pandemic Prevention Institute. To be truly successful, we need global collaboration to ensure we are able to see signals all around the world. Only with a truly global system will we see a pandemic-free future. So the dream of making pandemics as predictable as the weather may take some time to come true. Rob Stein, NPR News. gas in New Jersey? Don't plan on pumping it yourself. The state has banned drivers from pumping their own gas for more than 70 years. But high gas prices and a shortage of station attendance has meant renewed calls to lift the ban. Hear more tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered, disinformation and Russia's fake fact-checkers. In business news, the North Shore is leading the state of Massachusetts in job growth. A report today by the state's Department of Labor and Workforce Development finds the number of jobs in the North Shore increased by more than 6 percent in the past 12 months. The next highest were in Springfield, the Merrimack Valley, and in the immediate Boston area. Wall Street numbers are next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. 
citysidesubaru.com. Investors shook off a sluggish start to the week. The Dow today picked up nearly 1.5 percent, 500 points, to close at 34,911. S&P rose a little over 1.5 percent to close at 44.62. The Nasdaq picked up more than 2 percent to end the session at 13,620. All the details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th semesteroff.com. Red Sox start up a series with Toronto tonight at Fenway. Nathan Navaldi pitches. The Bruins are on the road in St. Louis. Partly cloudy tonight, at least windy and dry. Lows about 40. Then for tomorrow, should have the sunshine again. Still gusty winds up around 57 degrees for a high. In the Boston area, 51 degrees now. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Disinformation was a big problem before the war in Ukraine. Now it's even worse with the rise of fake fact-checkers. You've probably seen real fact-check articles online, news organizations debunking rumors and fake news circulating on social media. Several channels on the messaging app Telegram look like independent fact-checkers, but if you look closer, you see they're actually pro-Russian propaganda outlets spreading fake news about the invasion. Kevin Nguyen has written about the latest front in the information war for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and he joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Daniel. Can you briefly walk us through this? When someone opens up their Telegram app, what are they seeing? So Telegram is an encrypted messaging app. If you are using it to follow the invasion of Ukraine and you're following these kind of fact-checking outlets, you would never know that they're actually, they don't specifically tell tell you that they're Russian-aligned, but if you have to go into them, what you're going to find is exclusively anti-Ukrainian, what appears or what positions itself as sophisticated forensic analysis of events, of specific videos and of specific events within the Ukrainian invasion. So give us a specific example of one of the fake fact-checking channels that you've been looking at. One example I looked at was the attack of the TV tower in Kiev, which is the Ukrainian capital. Um, Look how strange these bodies are positioned. Look how close the morgue is to this TV tower. Isn't that suspicious? And here's a picture of Google Maps showing you that it's quite close to each other. So the claim was that Ukrainians allegedly had brought bodies in from the morgue to stage that there were deaths in that attack? Yes, it's just unilaterally false information. So these fake fact-check channels we're seeing primarily on Telegram? Yes, we are. Well, how much traction do these fake fact-check channels get? 
It's difficult to say. Uh, Telegram is a bit harder to read than, say, Twitter in terms of its reach or its impressions. The issue with Telegram is not just that you're going to this group and that's what you're seeing. It's that Russian officials, other accounts are taking these exact claims and running it as well. Well, Kevin, what is the goal? I mean, are they trying to convince Russians with these fake posts or are they trying to dupe, you know, people around the world? This is a tactic that's kind of emerged. I mean, we've seen fake fact checkers before, fake media outlets before, but it's in terms of how it's getting other outlets to report on it as well. It, Russian state media has been very effective over the past couple of years of actually getting a lot of other people to run their lines of rhetoric. A really good example of this is Russia has very specific language about how it frames this invasion of Ukraine. They call it a Ukrainian special operation. And you see that parroted by Chinese state media. So um, just a few hours ago, the People's Daily in China, very specifically calling it a Ukrainian special operation. And so and that's kind of new. And this the telegram and the fake fact-checking through this is just a bit of an extension of that. Well, the end result is if you flood the zone with a lot of fake news, you create doubt and then people think twice about uh, sympathizing with Ukraine. Yeah, when you when doubt flourishes, you become reluctant to even sympathize. So before I let you go, what advice do you have for average news consumers? Not only do they have to check their sources when before they share something on social media, but when they see a fact check, are they supposed to be verifying the verifiers now? What should be happening is that there are people who have proven, have a proven track record of doing it really, really well and doing it in this service of truth. And if you are looking specifically for fact checks, check the ones that you know um, have a proven track record. I, it's it's interesting because me saying the next line plays into it, but sometimes you don't want to disbelieve it in the first go and you need to take that extra step. But if you're going to take that extra step, take it with someone that you trust. Kevin Newen is a reporter and producer for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thanks so much, Daniel. Have a great day. Gas prices are now about $1.50 a gallon higher than they were last year at this time. That has business owners in places like Montana worried, because nearly 90% of last year's visitors to the state came by car. Montana Public Radio's Freddie Monaris has more. It's still a few weeks to peak tourist season in Montana, but a few cars with out-of-state license plates are fueling up at this gas station just outside of Missoula. Colleen Billman says high gas prices didn't affect her decision to drive her Dodge pickup over from eastern Washington state to visit friends. She says she tries to stay away from gas stations near tourist attractions, but sometimes can't help it. I have a feeling that's where we got yesterday <laughs> when we had the national debt, <laughs> when we fueled the tank on this beast. Billman says she spent $250 to fill up. And it's the most I've ever spent on fueling the tank. Nearby at Blackfoot River Outfitters, owner John Herzer is filling the high prices too. I have to fill my truck every two or three days and it's 70 bucks a pop or whatever it is. Herzer guides clients on fly fishing trips, which means hauling boats to area rivers, feeding his clients lunch, and then paying a shuttle service to drive them back to where they started. 
to starts to hurt and you're, you're buying food every day. I mean, all those things just add up to where your bottom line isn't quite what it once was. Herzer says he's had to raise prices 5% from last year to $625 to take two people down the river. At some point, he expects higher prices could impact people's willingness to book fishing trips. The jury's still out, but this year, I still feel like we're, we're solid. But going into 2023, we're going to have to revisit all that stuff. Economist Jeremy Sage tracks tourist spending at the University of Montana. He says high gas prices are only one factor in whether people cancel vacations or spend less when they travel. They can almost ignore them if they're feeling economically stable in general. They're not coming to Montana to spend money on gas. They're coming to Montana to have their glacier experience, to have their Yellowstone experience, to have that fishing experience. With many Americans sitting on money they didn't spend during the pandemic, Sage expects tourists either scale their trips back or inflate their vacation budget and spend more. I think uh, gas prices will, will dampen it a little bit, but I don't think it's going to create some devastating impact of reduction in travel and expenditures in Montana. A U.S. Travel Association report says nearly 9 in 10 Americans plan to travel this summer, a majority of those by car. About 12 million people visit Montana every year. Back at the gas station, Colleen Billman says she and her husband cut back on spending before this trip. She says the last time they came to Montana was about a year ago and that they're picky about vacations they take. We value our time off and we'll make that really special. People whose jobs depend on tourist spending are hoping Montana's allure will remain strong enough to keep visitors coming in spite of higher gas prices forecasted for this summer. The more than $3 billion they spend every year keeps a lot of businesses' boats afloat here. For NPR News, I'm Freddie Monatis in Missoula. The second and final round of the French presidential election is this weekend. On tomorrow's Morning Edition, we check in on a tight race and the issues concerning most voters. To listen, turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis has targeted Disney World. In sports, Red Sox will put Nathan Avaldi on the mound tonight as the Sox welcome the Blue Jays. Game time is 7-10. Two more Sox players have tested positive for COVID-19 and will miss out on the action tonight. Catcher Christian Vasquez and utility player Jonathan Aruz. Yesterday, the team announced catcher Kevin Ploiecki and two staff members tested positive. This is WBUR. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hills School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. By Condental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. And Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Over the years in the Putin era, you've seen this paranoid streak in Russian society about people looking for hidden spies and traitors. And then this Putin speech really legitimizes it, sending a message that it was time to start a new wave of repression against dissent. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says that Ukraine continues to build its military aircraft capability even as Russia has intensified attacks on strategic segments of Ukraine. We've acknowledged that fighting in the Donbass is going to require uh, an effort for both sides on long-range fires, which means for both sides artillery. We've, no- we've noticed that the Russians have moved in artillery support into the Donbass, and, and it follows that the Ukrainians would want artillery support. In a secure video call from the White House Situation Room, President Biden and the leaders of Britain and Canada pledged to send more military support to Ukraine. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Canadian Prime Minister Justice Trudeau agreed with Biden on a plan to send additional artillery weaponry to Ukraine in the face of an all-out Russian assault on that country's east. Other allies also attended the 90-minute video call, all parties agreeing to coordinate efforts to impose, quote, severe economic cost to Russia. China and the Solomon Islands have signed an agreement on security cooperation. A draft of the pact that circulated online last month triggered alarm in nearby Australia and the U.S. As NPR's John Ruich reports, it indicates that Chinese naval vessels could dock in the South Pacific nation. China's foreign ministry says the cooperation will range from maintaining social order to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. It says the idea is to promote social stability and long-term peace and security for the Solomon Islands. The White House said on Monday it was dispatching two top foreign policy officials to the South Pacific nation this week. And State Department spokesman Ned Price said the security agreement would set a concerning precedent for the region and leave open the possibility that China could deploy military forces to the Solomon Islands. John Ruich, NPR News. A positive day on Wall Street. The Dow gained 499 points. The Nasdaq was up 287 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you are on the tee this afternoon, you can ditch the mask if you like. The MBTA announced today that it has dropped its mask mandate for customers on most of the system. The transit system is one of several in the country to do so after a federal judge voided the Centers for Disease Control mandate yesterday for planes and public transportation. WBOR's Daryl C. Murphy has more. The judge said the CDC failed to justify its decision for the mandate and did not follow proper rulemaking protocol. The team now joins Massport, Uber and Lyft and several airlines in dropping the requirement, though masks are still required on its paratransit service. The decision comes as COVID cases in Massachusetts are trending up as a new Omicron subvariant spreads. While it's no longer a requirement, the CDC still recommends people wear masks in indoor public transportation settings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Daryl C. Murphy. President Biden is trumpeting the effect of new infrastructure spending in New Hampshire. Today, the president visited Portsmouth Harbor. The bipartisan infrastructure bill he signed last year will provide nearly $2 million to dredge the harbor. He said that'll make it easier for large ships to access the port and bring goods into the state. Instead of turning away business, we're sending a message. This port is open for business and will be for a long time. Today was Biden's second visit to the swing state since last November. It comes as the Democratic Party is considering whether to shake up its presidential primary calendar. Traditionally, New Hampshire is held the first in the nation primary. If you've got a trip to the Registry of Motor Vehicles planned for this week, you are not alone. The state is warning that customer volume is high because a lot of people are off for the school vacation week. The registry says to save yourself a long wait, check to see if the transaction you need can be done on its website. And if it can't be, the registry says you should go online to schedule your in-person appointment. 
It's 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. And the Elliott Hotel and Uni Restaurant in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and personalized service where guests can relax in their one- and two-bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. Fair share of clouds around this evening and overnight tonight, still on the windy side. Overnight lows about 40. Tomorrow, clouds should exit, letting the sunshine in. Gusty winds again, highs in the mid-50s. Thursday, partly sunny, should hit 60, maybe even a little bit warmer on Friday. 50 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from USPS. Serving every address in the country. More than 160 million nationwide. USPS. Delivering for America. Learn more at usps.com delivering. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Florida's pugnacious Republican Governor Ron DeSantis squared off today against a heavyweight opponent, the Walt Disney Company. In a surprise move, DeSantis expanded the agenda of a special legislative session to include a bill that would revoke Walt Disney World's status as a, quote, independent special district. Florida gave Disney that special status more than 50 years ago. It grants the company self-governing authority and exempts it from nearly all state regulations. NPR's Greg Allen has been following this story and joins us now. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. Uh, Florida is nearly synonymous with Walt Disney World for many people all over the world. So after all these years, why does Governor DeSantis want to revoke Disney's special status? Well, you know, Governor DeSantis has gained a national profile in the Republican Party by attacking what he calls woke values and policies in schools and businesses. He broke with longstanding tradition among governors and other officials in Florida by aiming his criticism at Disney. You know, that's one of the state's largest employers and taxpayers here in Florida. It's also one of the most powerful corporate voices in the state capital, Tallahassee. DeSantis began by criticizing Disney World for its COVID policies, including requiring employees to wear face masks. But really, what really motivated this week's action, though, is Disney's opposition to the recently passed Parental Rights and Education Act, a measure critics call Don't Say Gay. Disney's CEO said he'd work to overturn it, and after he made those comments, DeSantis said he'd, quote, cross the line. Florida's House Speaker, Republican uh, Chris Sprouls, was with DeSantis when he announced his plans to revoke Disney's special status today. Sprouls agrees that in its opposition to the controversial measure, Disney went too far. And I think using its corporate power to do that, using the benefits that the taxpayers have given them for so many years to do that, is wildly inappropriate. So I think the governor's anger was well-placed, and we're happy to take it up. So far, there's been no response yet from Disney on all this. And what would dissolving this special district do? How would it affect Disney? Well, you know, it's really not clear yet. There's been very little study or discussion of its impact because this bill was just introduced earlier today. It would eliminate all independent special districts in Florida created before 1968, and it wouldn't take effect until next year. So the bill sponsors as Disney and other special districts that are affected can come back and try to get new charters if they want. What is clear, though, is that doing this would shift a lot of responsibility and costs for much of Disney World's infrastructure to the adjoining counties. Here's Rick Vogelsong, 
former professor and author who wrote a book about Disney World called Married to the Mouse. They would have to provide public services, water, sewer, fire. They would have to do building inspections. That would be an onerous job. All those special buildings and rides and whatnot. You know, there are a few hundred workers directly employed by the special district, and there's thousands more workers who are there on projects that could be affected. The bill's sponsor was asked if he talked to any of the workers, officials with the special district, or in the nearby counties about the potential economic impact of the shakeup, and he said no, they can come back next year and we'll talk to them then. Democratic State Representative Carlos Guillermo Smith asked his Republican colleagues why they were rushing to consider a bill that would have such a big and still unknown impact. All because... One business had the gall to stand up for the LGBTQ community. Now, I said this comes during a special session that is considering a new Republican-friendly congressional map drawn by DeSantis. Is he going to win on both these measures? It appears so at this point. Uh, Republicans have a majority in both the House and Senate, and so far they've shown very little sign of rebelling against the governor's agenda here. NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thank you. You're welcome. For years, about half the books published in Ukraine came from Russia and were written in Russian. Ukrainians say those books often portrayed their country in a negative light. In recent years, the Ukrainian government has made it a priority to promote their own writers. And with the war raging, they say that's become more important than ever. Jim Zaroli reports. Like many Ukrainian publishers, Vivat Publishing House is headquartered in the eastern city of Kharkiv, which has been the target of a vicious Russian bombing campaign. When the war came, uh, we lose a lot. Chief Communications Officer Galina Padalko says company employees have had to flee the city and work remotely. Padalko's street was bombed and she's had to return to her hometown in eastern Ukraine. We are not sure in our future, we are not sure about our ability to work tomorrow because um, there is no safe place in Ukraine. But Padalko remains defiantly optimistic, and not without reason. Before the Crimea invasion eight years ago, Ukraine's book market was dominated by huge Russian companies. There were Ukrainian writers, but they tended to avoid serious subjects, says writer Andrei Kirkov, who spoke at an online forum sponsored by PEN America. Until 2014, Ukrainian literature was not militant. It was actually mostly... Uh, love stories, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and actually easy uh, going uh, sto- stories. Kirkov says Crimea changed everything. Books about the war proliferated, and many were dark and very political. Crimea also provoked a backlash against Russian books. Irina Batarevich, who runs a website about Ukrainian books, says some Russian writing amounted to little more than pro-Kremlin propaganda. They wrote that Ukraine is uh, full of Nazis. They wrote that Ukraine is doesn't deserve to be a separate country. It, it was really horrible. In 2016, Ukraine banned certain Russian publishers. Human rights groups condemned the ban as censorship. But with Russian companies sidelined, Ukrainian publishers filled the gap. And within three years, Ukrainian book sales rose by half. 
Literary agent Emma Shercliffe, who has researched the market, says the industry flourished. I was just really bowled over with the quality of the work, the high production values, really interesting and quite different fiction and non-fiction. It was just really exciting. The recent invasion has upended the industry. Publishers can no longer get their books into stores and supply chains have been eviscerated. Really through absolutely no fault of their own, you know, the industry has just been been decimated. And everywhere, writers have shut down their laptops to take arms against the Russians, says Andrei Kirkov. There are many writers now who are helping the army or in the army. We, we now uh, entered completely different life. I mean, the old relaxed Mediterranean life of Ukraine is over. Much of the publishing world is rallying in support of Ukraine. Russian companies have been blacklisted at international book fairs, and writers such as Stephen King say they won't let their books be published in Russia. Galina Padalko believes time is on Ukraine's side. We have one dream to return in Kharkiv and continue our work in our hometown. And of course, we all know that we will win. In our books, the good always uh, triumphs over evil. Lately, Padalko's company has begun giving away digital copies of Ukrainian books. At a time when Russia continues to churn out propaganda about the war, she says, it's more important than ever that Ukrainian voices be heard. For NPR News, this is Jim Zaroli. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A robotic mission to orbit Uranus, a probe that can land on a potentially life-supporting moon of Saturn, and a better plan for astronauts to do science when they go to our moon. These are among the top priorities outlined for NASA by a group of planetary researchers. NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce, with one of the coolest assignments at NPR, joins us to discuss this new report. Hi, Nell. Hey there. Okay, first of all, I understand this is a pretty important report. Why does it matter so much? Well, it matters because it's basically a highly influential scientific wish list that's put together just once every decade. So there's lots of cool places out there to explore. Scientists would love to go everywhere, but money is not unlimited. And at some point, decisions have to be made. This kind of report is how the field of planetary science sort of comes to a consensus on what missions seem the most compelling. Every 10 years, the prestigious National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine convene a bunch of experts to review the state of the science and make a list of priorities. Okay, so what are the priorities? This time around, the big headline is a mission to Uranus. It's a blue ice giant planet like Neptune, so smaller than a gas giant like Jupiter. And it's got a lot of icy materials around a rocky core. Now, studies of planets around distant stars show that ice giants are probably the most common kind of planet in the universe. But NASA has never sent a spacecraft to orbit an ice giant and study it closely. I mean, Voyager 2 flew by Uranus back in 1986, but that's about it. 
And then the other destination that these experts say NASA should visit is Enceladus. And that's an icy moon of Saturn. It has geysers that spew out water vapor from an underground ocean. And that means a probe could land there and analyze samples that originated deep within and then sort of rain down on the probe. And, you know, they could see if conditions there are right for life. Wow, so cool, Nell. Okay, so a moon of Saturn, what about our moon? I mean, do the experts prioritize that? Because I understand NASA is trying to send people back to the moon sometime in the next decade. That is a tough one. Um, the report is super excited about the scientific potential of human exploration of the moon, but it also raises real concerns about whether good science will get done there by the astronauts. It says it looks like the scientific payoff of the first landings that are planned might be minimal. Basically, they say NASA has to reorganize itself to make sure high-quality science gets incorporated into moon trips. You know, since the Apollo moon program ended, human spaceflight has been sort of separate from planetary exploration. And this report says NASA needs to fix that disconnect. Huh. Okay, so briefly, uh, we heard a lot of exciting ideas from these experts, but does NASA tend to follow the advice? Generally, yes. I mean, so-called decadal surveys like this one have a real impact with NASA, as well as with Congress, which controls the budget. The last time around, the top recommendations were to bring home rocks from Mars and send a probe to Europa, a moon of Jupiter. And NASA is now working on both of those. Wow. NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Thanks, Nell. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered. After eight seasons, the ABC sitcom Blackish is ending tonight. We'll hear from TV critic Eric Deggins. In the forecast, a fair share of clouds around this evening and tonight, still on the windy side. Lows about 40, and then for tomorrow, clouds should exit, letting some sunshine in gusty winds. Highs in the mid-50s. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs starting May 6th. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Red Sox start up a series with Toronto tonight at Fenway Park. Nathan Navaldi pitches. Bruins are on the road in St. Louis to face the Blues as the teams wind down their regular season. Celts are off until tomorrow night. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Harvard Radcliffe Institute, animated by a legacy of promoting inclusion and a commitment to expanding human understanding. Join Ruth Simmons, Ibram X. Kendi, and others to explore legacies of slavery and the path to repair. April 29th. Register at radcliffe.harvard.edu events. 
the news never sleeps. And we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems, the stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Florida, there's new legislation before Governor Ron DeSantis that would be a major blow to the Sunshine State's rooftop solar industry. Utilities defend the measure, saying that now non-solar customers are subsidizing solar ones. Amy Green of WMFE has the story. On a sunny afternoon at an Orlando neighborhood center, children run and play on a playground and shoot hoops on a basketball court. High above the children's heads on the neighborhood center's roof, 260 solar panels are turning the sunshine into energy. The neighborhood center offers after-school childcare and other services for residents of this diverse working-class neighborhood. A local company called 15 Light Years installed the panels. Lisa Percy is the founder and owner of the business. It's a pretty great thing to be able to harness the power of the sun to, to bring it into a community where maybe they're on a, um, a scale where they can't do it in their apartments or they're in a scale where they can't bring it into their homes because they're renters, um, but they still have access to clean renewable energy. But now Percy is concerned for her business's future. The legislation before DeSantis involves net metering, a billing arrangement aimed at compensating rooftop solar customers for excess energy they send back to the grid. Utilities say the arrangement means that non-solar customers pay more for electricity. They are backing the measure which would phase in new net metering rates beginning in 2024. Here's Chris McGrath of Florida Power and Light Company. If you don't have solar panels on your roof, which is the vast majority of electric customers, you're paying extra to support somebody else who has made a private purchase. But clean energy advocates say the measure would reduce financial incentives for rooftop solar, discouraging new customers and decimating the $18.3 billion solar industry in the state. They want DeSantis to veto the legislation. Here's how Justin Vandenbroek of the Florida Solar Energy Industries Association says the measure would work. Think of rollover minutes where, you know, if you had an extra 100 minutes left over at the end of the month, um, instead of getting those full 100 minutes, you get starting in 2024, you're going to get 70 minutes. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, you get 50 minutes and then and then potentially less. Solar customers represent less than 1% of all energy consumers in Florida, but the industry is growing fast here. Solar is projected to meet up to 30% of the state's energy needs in the next 10 years, according to advocates. The legislation comes as Florida lacks any real plan for reducing its reliance on fossil fuels and transitioning toward cleaner energy sources. Jonathan Weber of Florida Conservation Voters points out that's even as the state is uniquely vulnerable to climate change. On the House floor, we've heard members deny that climate change is a human-caused problem, um, which is shocking considering it's 2022. When it comes to climate change, DeSantis doesn't talk about it much focusing instead on reliance and adaptation. Back at the Orlando Neighborhood Center, Lisa Percy of 15 Light Years thinks that if DeSantis signs the legislation, 
that could lead to a boom and bust scenario for rooftop solar. As energy consumers rush to purchase panels ahead of the new net metering rates, she worries most about lost jobs. It's a really new industry, and so there's a lot of heartbeat to it. And I think taking that away is going to not only affect my business, of course it will, um, but it will also affect um, really the, the opportunities that we, we can't even see yet. DeSantis's office had no comment on how the governor might act on the legislation. If he signs it, the measure would take effect July 1st. For NPR News, I'm Amy Green in Orlando. The ABC show Blackish is a comedy about an upper middle class black family, and it presents a unique take on race and culture. In the very first episode in 2014, Anthony Anderson played a husband and father who fears that the spread of black culture into the pop mainstream might not always be a great thing. Sometimes I worry that in an effort to make it, black folks have dropped a little bit of their culture and the rest of the world has picked it up. They even renamed it Urban. Now, after eight years and 174 episodes, tonight is its final episode. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is here to talk about it. Hi, Eric. Hi. So you have referred to Blackish as a groundbreaking show. So what was so groundbreaking about it? Well, Blackish was created by Kenya Barris, who developed the show as a family comedy that talked boldly about race and culture in a way that still wasn't common on network TV, even in 2014. Now, Anthony Anderson is playing Dre Johnson, an advertising executive married to a doctor, living in a nice home. He's got great kids. It might sound like a new school version of The Cosby Show, hmm. but Blackish digs into the kind of racial issues that Cosby sitcom often avoided, talking about how the country's multiculturalism might challenge and change what it means to be black in America. Now, one of their landmark episodes features Dre's youngest son saying the N-word while performing a rap song at his school talent show. And it kicks off an argument between Dre and his father, who's played by Lawrence Fishburne, over when and whether it's okay to use the N-word at all. Let's check it out. All we're saying is, of course, every now and then it slips out, but it's never said casually and never in mixed company. Pops, you and mom's generation use the word for self-hate. My generation, we use it as a term of colloquialism and power. Same way the slaves took the leftover pig guts and found them plants growing in the woods and turned it into chitlins and collard greens. Yeah, here you come with that chitlin argument. <laughs> they even bleeped when the characters used the N-word, uh, probably to keep viewers a little more focused on the jokes. Huh, okay. Now, you wrote about the show today on NPR.org, and you said lots of people, especially people of color, were wary about the show at first. Why was that? Well, I wrote about sitting at a charity event in 2015 next to a well-known black journalist who got into a discussion with Barris and Anderson about the show's title. Now, back then, people hadn't necessarily seen the show, and a name like Blackish kind of raised suspicions. Hmm. You know, it, it made people wonder if a white producer had chosen some name that somehow diminished black culture. But once you see the show, you realize it's centered on Dre's fears that he's raising children that aren't authentically black. They might be blackish, and they're challenging. And they are challenging him to see black identity in different and less rigid ways. Huh. Now, there was one episode that was actually yanked by ABC and only released two years later on Hulu. What happened there? 
Well, the episode was called Please Baby Please, and it featured Dre telling a bedtime story to his baby that also wound up referencing the racism that reemerged in America after the election of Donald Trump. It was supposed to air in 2018, he got shelved, and then it got released on Hulu in August 2020 after a summer of protests about systemic racism in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Now, once viewers saw it, they could see that the episode might have been a bit on the nose, but it wasn't particularly controversial. Hmm. Quick last question. What do you think the legacy of Blackish will be? I think Blackish to find a way of talking about race and culture on a sitcom that many other shows have benefited from since. They talk about issues affecting black folks in ways that acknowledge we're not monoliths while recalling and celebrating all the elements of the culture that draw us together. And as showbiz, as showbiz legacies go, it's not a bad one. Hmm. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities, the Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. You can rip off the face mask if you're riding the T this evening. The MBTA said a couple of hours ago that effective immediately, the mask mandate is lifted for its customers. Many of the state's 15 regional transit authorities are doing the same. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, April 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins, this is happening after a federal judge ended the mask mandate on public transportation. Some infectious disease experts think ditching the mask mandate is unwise. I think pulling back on mask requirements in high-risk environments like public transport is a very concerning strategy. And this evening on Marketplace, streaming services are seeing a lag in new subscriptions, and now some are offering a discount price that would come with advertising. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. One of Ukraine's top presidential advisors is accusing Russia of bombing a steel plant where more than a thousand families are sheltering. 
NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on one of the remaining Ukrainian strongholds in Mariupol. The advisor Mihailo Podiak called on religious and world leaders to organize together and create humanitarian corridors. On Twitter, he wrote, quote, The world watches the murder of children online and remains silent. He also said if they don't act soon, blood will be on their hands. There has already been a lot of blood spilt in Mariupol. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russia of destroying the city. The Ukrainians say they will fight to the very end, but the Russians have long had them outmanned and outgunned, and Russian forces appear to be on the verge of taking control of the city. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Poltava, Ukraine. Moderna says a new COVID-19 vaccine it's been testing provides stronger protection against variants of the coronavirus. More from NPR's Rob Stein. Moderna is testing several new COVID-19 vaccines that are designed to target variants of the virus. In a new preliminary study, the drug maker tested a vaccine that targets the original strain of the virus along with the beta variant. Company officials say this so-called bivalent vaccine produced double the level of antibodies against Omicron compared to the original vaccine, and that protection appears to last for six months against Omicron. Moderna is expecting results from another new version of the vaccine that specifically targets Omicron later this spring. The company thinks this version is probably the leading candidate for a vaccine campaign this fall. Rob Stein, NPR News. The judge is declining a request to reduce bond for James and Jennifer Crumbly. They're the parents of the teen accused of killing four people in an Oxford in Michigan high school last November. As Alex McLennan of member station WDET reports, the couple are awaiting trial on involuntary manslaughter charges. Attorneys representing the Crumblies were asking for bond to be reduced from half a million to $100,000. Oakland County Judge Cheryl Matthews says one factor in the decision was the court viewing the husband and wife as potential flight risks. Therefore, although the defendants appear to have strong family ties to Florida, the court is not aware of current ties the defendants have to this community. The judge also cited the couple's failure to turn themselves into law enforcement as a reason not to reduce bond. The potential start date for the trial is October 24th. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, says it intends to celebrate Earth Day by expanding its access of fundraising tools to nonprofits via its social networking sites. Under one change, users of Instagram will be able to attach donation buttons to their reels. On Wall Street, the Dow jumped 499 points today. The Nasdaq rose 287. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts transportation officials announced today that the MBTA will lift its mask mandate on the public transit system effective immediately. That applies to the entire system except for the ride paratransit service. The change comes after a judge yesterday tossed out the CDC's face covering mandate for airplanes and mass transit. Governor Charlie Baker said today that one reason the change can take place is that there is stronger guidance at this stage in the pandemic about who should mask and when. We've been pretty good as a commonwealth about giving people space if they feel they need to wear a mask. Other transportation agencies have also scrapped the mask mandate. They include transit systems in Worcester and the Pioneer Valley, as well as Amtrak and Logan Airport. Some local health experts are criticizing the judge's ruling that threw out the mandate. Dr. Robert Duncan is an infectious disease specialist at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston the discarding of the mandate will likely cause the coronavirus to spread. 
From my point of view, a mask is a, uh, a great little safety device that has a uh, very small downside to it. And uh, I can tell you I'll be wearing mine when I'm doing public transportation in the near future. Duncan says masks give people a layer of protection that can help prevent infection. One place where you still need a mask for now is on the ferries between Cape Cod and the islands. Today, the Steamship Authority said it's keeping its mask mandate in place for now while it reviews yesterday's federal court ruling. Boston has a new chief of planning. Mayor Michelle Wu named Arthur Jemison to the new role. He was previously working for the Biden administration as an assistant secretary in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The mayor says Jemison will be responsible for coordinating land use planning and have a key role in reforming the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The appointment comes after the agency's leader, Brian Golden, announced his resignation last week. And Boston Marathon medical teams say they treated more than 1,500 people during yesterday's event. Most of them were seen by medical volunteers at the finish line. Stephanie Walsh is the race course medical coordinator. She spoke this morning. There was a total of 55 patients seen by area hospital emergency departments. And the Boston Athletic Association will continue to work with all athletes through discharge and beyond to ensure that everyone has what they need. All runners were required to be vaccinated against COVID, but 70 were allowed to take part in the marathon under medical exemptions. In the forecast, some clouds around overnight tonight should be windy and dry, lows about 40 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine still breezy, right up around 57 degrees. In the Boston area, 48 degrees now at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cy Sims Foundation since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Well... That didn't take long. Good morning, America. The major mass reversal. The federal mass mandate for travelers is over as masks come off on planes, trains, airports. By Tuesday morning, less than 24 hours after a federal judge struck down the CDC's mask mandate for public transportation, videos like this one appeared on social media. The Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. That's a crew member on a flight announcing the change to applause. The nation's largest airlines dropped their mask requirements just hours after a federal judge ruled the CDC had overstepped its legal authority. That judge was appointed by former President Trump. Her decision cleared the way for masks to come off elsewhere, too. Rideshare company Uber announcing overnight it is dropping mask mandates for drivers and riders. Airlines and ride-hailing companies seem pretty happy to dispense with the mandates as quickly as possible. After all, the FAA received nearly 6,000 reports of unruly airline passenger incidents last year, an all-time high. And more than 70% of those incidents were caused by mask conflicts. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. That was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Monday, reminding everyone that the mask mandate had been set to expire this week anyway. That was, of course, before the CDC sought to extend the mandate by two weeks in the face of the BA2 subvariant. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. 
as you know, this just came out this afternoon. So right now, the Department All right. Of we'll get into the political stakes with NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith in a moment. But first, how much power does the CDC have and what does that mean for future pandemics? Well, to answer that question, let's bring in, let's bring in Selena Simmons-Duffin and Maria Godoy of NPR's Science Desk to talk about both the science and the policy at the center of all of this. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Hi. All right, Selena, let's start with you. Can you just talk about this federal district court decision that came down yesterday? Like, tell us a little bit about the case and what the specific ruling is. Right. So this challenge was filed last July, and it came from an organization called the Health Freedom Defense Fund, which is based in Idaho. But other than that, there's very little public information about it. Um, Also in the complaint were two women who have anxiety when they fly. So they argued that the masks made their anxiety worse, and that's not one of the conditions that's exempted from the requirement. So these plaintiffs attacked the mask rules on all sorts of different fronts in the complaint. And the district court judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell, based agreed with all of their objections. She found it was unlawful and vacated the rule for the whole country. For the whole country. Okay, Maria, as we heard earlier, airlines, you know, like even in the middle of flights, made announcements to people saying they no longer had to wear masks. And I'll be getting on a plane this week. I'm just wondering, what is the risk right now of being exposed for those of us who are traveling on public transportation? Well, let's start by talking about air travel, because Mm -hmm. airplanes themselves have really good air filtration systems when they're in flight, but the ventilation isn't so great on those tightly packed tunnels you use to get on the plane. And the same goes for when you're sitting on the tarmac. I've seen aerosols experts post photos on Twitter of their own air travels. They're using carbon dioxide monitors to show just how poor the ventilation can be on a plane just before takeoff. The good news is that once you're in the air, that filtration system is on. Dr. Edward Nardell is an expert in airborne disease transmission at Harvard. He says the air on airplanes is compartmentalized in such a way that you're really just sharing air with people in the few rows around you, not the whole plane. If you're immediately next to somebody who is highly infectious, your best protection is is a mask and a tight-fitting one at that, rather than depending on the ventilation. In other words, airplane air can be good, but he's going to keep wearing a tight-fitting mask when he travels. That means a respirator mask like an N95, KN95, or KF94. Okay, well, what about travel on, say, like buses or ride-sharing services like Uber or Lyft? Well, Nardell says research prior to the pandemic found ventilation on buses can be pretty bad in some cases. That's not always true. It depends on the bus, but certainly crowding doesn't help. Opening windows can help, but that's not always possible on a bus. So he strongly suggests you keep wearing a mask in that situation. As for ride-sharing services, as you mentioned earlier, Uber said today it will no longer require drivers or passengers to mask up on rides. Right. Okay. Well, you know, one argument among people who wanted this requirement to be gone is that, you know, they were saying people who are vulnerable or worried can just wear their own mask themselves. Can you just explain for us why that is not equivalent to everyone wearing masks on public transit? Well, look, we know one-way masking is highly protective, but I can't stress this enough. You need to be wearing a respirator. I'm not talking about cloth masks, which really don't do much against Omicron. 
surgical masks are a step up, but really, if you want to be protected, you need a respirator. Mm-hmm. Respirators can't completely eliminate the risk of getting infected, but they make a big difference. And you protect yourself further by getting vaccinated and boosted with Omicron. The evidence shows you really need that third shot. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, protection, protection would be more if everyone were wearing a mask. Well, Selena, I know that you have been talking to some some public health and legal experts who are looking at this ruling, and they're saying this ruling's kind of just sort of pretty out there. Why is that? Well, as you mentioned, the judge in this case was confirmed and nominated by President Trump. This was all very recent, and she was given a rating of unqualified by the American Bar Association when she was nominated because of, quote, the short time she has actually practiced law and her lack of meaningful trial experience. So the health law experts I've talked with say her opinion in this case is just very poorly reasoned. Erin Fusay-Brown, who teaches law at Georgia State University, told me it reads like one of her first-year law students' final exam. It reads like someone who had decided the case and then tried to dress it up as legal reasoning without actually doing the legal reasoning. So as an example, Fusay Brown told me, sanitation is a public health term that broadly means taking steps to prevent the spread of a disease. But in this opinion, Judge Kimball Mizell interpreted the word sanitation to just mean physically cleaning. She says, given that sanitation means to clean something, to destroy disease particles, then CDC can't just ask people to wear masks because it doesn't literally destroy the virus to, to pass it through a mask. It just seemed crazy to me to, re- to read the statute that way. So where does all of this leave the CDC in future outbreaks like the ongoing BA2? In the short term, Fuse Brown told me this really ties the agency's hands. And she says it raises its own questions of who should have power over public health rules. Even if we're skeptical about agencies or even about Congress's ability to make good judgments in this time, we certainly do not want these decisions to be in the hands of a single unelected judge. She says the judge didn't open any doors for CDC to come back and change the mask requirement. She just declared it vacated and unlawful, period. All right. That is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin and Maria Godoy. Thank you to both of you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to bring in NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith to talk through the political stakes here. Hey, Tam. Hey. All right. So White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called this federal court decision disappointing. What do you think the administration's next move is going to be? We don't know yet. Saki told reporters on Air Force One today that the Department of Justice is taking its time to figure out next steps. But she made clear that no decision had been made yet. Uh, the president was asked today whether people should continue to wear masks on planes. And he said, quote, that's up to them. Uh, for the administration, there is a concern about letting this stand as a legal precedent. There's also a concern about being seen as rolling over on something that public health experts say could be really problematic down the line. Um, And politically, you know, the White House has been trying to move into the next phase of the pandemic. And President Biden has been taking a lot of heat from progressives who are concerned that he's now putting politics ahead of public health. Well, what about the politics here? Because, I mean, there were videos of people celebrating on planes. There was cheering and clapping. How much would you say that reflects actual public opinion? Because aren't there a lot of people out there who wanted these mass mandates in place? 
Like everything with the pandemic, it's polarized. Democrats are overwhelmingly in favor of the mandate continuing, and Republicans are overwhelmingly opposed. A Kaiser Family Foundation poll found earlier this month that 51 percent, so a narrow majority, thought the mandate should be allowed to expire, and 48 percent said it should continue. And this makes the politics for the White House sort of a no-win situation. Liberals are upset, and the White House doesn't get credit from independents or from conservatives for lifting the mandate because it came from a judicial ruling. Saki insisted that, as she often does, this is not being driven by politics at the White House. Well, I've seen those videos. Anecdotes are not data, right? Um, and certainly that does tell a part of the story. Um, but we don't make these decisions based on politics or based on the political whims on a plane or even in a poll. But I would note in polls um, they, in, in data, lengthier data, there are still a lot of people in this country who still want to have masks. And she was speaking on the one airplane where the administration still has total control, Air Force One. Uh, the White House had asked that everyone today continue to mask up. Right. Air Force One, quite possibly now the only plane in America where everyone will be wearing masks. OK, so I guess the question here is, even if the Justice Department does appeal this lower court decision, do you think that there's any going back to universal masking at this point? What do you think? The mask requirement had been hanging on by a thread with many passengers on public transportation and planes barely complying. And this is just the latest example of the pandemic moving into a new phase where community sacrifice in the name of public health is being replaced by individual choices. Zeke Emanuel, a professor of public health management who consults regularly with the White House, told me that this is a problematic time. It's two years into the pandemic and it seems as though we have hit the wall uh, where people are no longer willing to make those sacrifices. And he's really discouraged by that. All right. That is NPR's Tamara Keith at the White House. Thank you, Tam. You're welcome. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On Wall Street, investors shook off a sluggish start to the week yesterday. Today, the Dow picked up nearly 1.5 percent, 500 points to close at 34,911. S&P rose a little more than 1.5 percent to close at 44.62. The Nasdaq picked up more than 2 percent to end the session at 13,620. Details coming up in 10 minutes on Marketplace. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And the Concord Museum. Experience history and art in the delightful new exhibit, Alive with Birds. William Brewster in Concord. ConcordMuseum.org. Coming up Thursday at WBUR City Space, join environmental reporter Miriam Wasser for a conversation about the pitfalls and promise of offshore wind in New England. Get free tickets at WBUR.org slash events. The forecast overnight tonight, a fair share of clouds around on the windy side still. Lows tonight right about 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, should have partly to mostly sunny skies. Lovely day tomorrow, still with gusty winds, those Highs in the mid-50s for Thursday. Partly sunny could hit 60 degrees. 48 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from C3AI, 
C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Three blasts rocked the Afghan capital, Kabul, on Tuesday. They appeared to target schools, and six people were killed. ISIS and other militants have struck schools and students in the past, but this was the first time since the Taliban swept to power in August. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad. Mohammad Rizayi, a 21-year-old physics teacher, told NPR from the hospital that he was wounded by the blast that struck near his institution, the Mumtaz Educational Center. He says many of his students had head and back injuries. At least one other blast struck near the Abdurrahim Shahid school as students were leaving their classes. The next few minutes and hours were crushingly familiar to Afghans. Twitter users shared images of bloodied school books and cleaners hosing down sidewalks. An aid group, Emergency, that runs free hospitals, said they received 10 wounded teenagers and one victim dead on arrival. The United Nations condemned the attack, as did neighbouring Pakistan, and the large aid group Save the Children. The schools are in a Kabul area dominated by ethnic Hazaras who are mainly Shiites. Militants have frequently targeted them in the past. Last year in April, attackers killed more than 85 girls who were leaving a secondary school in the same area. It was one of the worst attacks in Kabul in decades of conflict. Rizayi, the physics teacher, says this attack should not have happened. The Taliban boast of how they've secured Afghanistan, and certainly militant attacks are far less frequent now. But it's no consolation for parents, who again will be wondering if it's safe to send their children to school. Their boys, at least. The Taliban have not allowed girls to return to secondary school since they swept to power eight months ago. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. There are now more than six million people who have been displaced from their homes inside Ukraine. And as Russian forces prepare for another massive front in the east, that number is expected to grow. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny has been in Ukraine talking with families who had to flee and are struggling to adjust even in safer parts of the country. I first met the Lysenko family a day after they'd fled Chernihiv, a northern city in Ukraine that at the beginning of the war was under constant bombardment. Here's what they told me four weeks ago of their escape. Sometimes Russians along the roads with weapons. At times, they'd have to abandon the cars and run into a nearby field. Or get down in the car and try to hide. I've kept in touch with the family of four. Olha, a psychologist, her husband Ihor, who works in IT, and their two kids, Varya and Igor. They made it to Lviv, a major western city packed with other internally displaced people. But it was overcrowded. So they headed an hour and a half north to a city called Chervonograd, a mining town much smaller than where they're from. We're meeting for lunch a few minutes from their new apartment. Are you hungry at all? Yeah, They always hungry. They're staying in a distant relative's empty apartment. And after all they've been through, a quiet apartment with heat, electricity, and hot water is incredible. Yesterday, I took a hot shower, says Igor, who's nine. And it was awesome. Their house back in Chernihiv actually survived the bombardment. They're still in touch with their relatives who stayed. 
But their city is heavily damaged without working infrastructure, heat, electricity, schools, and hospitals. It's a no shape to actually live right now with kids. They will go back someday, they tell me, but they're focused right now on healing. Ihor tells me with each day that passes, his heart gets a little colder. Every day of war makes you harder, less emotional. Uh, I feel less human-like. There are still some moments where he feels emotion, though. Then I see some uh, destroyed uh, village uh, on the road to my village and uh, cry some in some silent corner. And he's been spending time back at work recently. There's not much to do because so many people are without steady internet or electricity. Many stayed in Chernihiv. But it's something. Olha, a psychologist, has started to offer sessions online, but she's taking it slow. She still has days where she's overcome with grief. She knows they were lucky. They're still alive, so are their relatives. But it's still a big trauma, she says. The place she went on a first date, her favorite park, all her memories are destroyed. There's a heaviness to that, she says. We'll never have the life we had before. (sighs) At the beginning of the war, Olha remembers thinking about things she'd wished she'd done more of in her life. Painting and drawing were at the top of that list. As soon as they moved into this apartment and she felt like things were settled, she ordered pastels and paper. She shows us some of her artwork she's made over the past week. It's not so good. She's modest. It's actually really good. She's focused mostly on fruit. An apple, it's first. It's a cluster of grapes, a pear. She says when she's drawing, she feels a sense of safety. The war, the trauma, it all floats away. She's been trying to get the kids to do some art, too, but it's been hard to get them to focus. I am painting very, very, very rarely, Igor says, smiling. Instead, he's been playing video games, watching TV. He's acting pretty normal, Olha says, but there are cracks. Like when the waitress asks how old he is, and he replies, I am nine, but I'm a big boy because my school was bombed. Veria, who is six, is extremely outgoing, and she's having a much harder time. She's had no one to play with here, her mom says, so she's constantly approaching strangers in hopes of playing. Even while we're eating, Varya disappears for about 20 minutes. Turns out she went to sit with another family with two kids a few booths down. I ask Olha if she's allowed herself to think about the future. And she shakes her head, no. There is no stability for us at all, she says. What way is life going to go, she asks, staring off into the distance. But as we leave the restaurant, Ihor tells me he's finding comfort in things in the here and now. Trivonograd, the city where they're staying, sounds similar to Chernihiv. Do you find yourselves kind of like looking for signs like that? Like the name is similar? Yes, yes. 
he tells me about the two cities' colors, red and black. They remind him of a Ukrainian folk song. The song's words are about destiny. The lyrics say, red color is love. Black color is something that must be overcome. He says, this means something. And it tells him they are exactly where they need to be. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Chervonograd, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. At least partly cloudy skies overnight. Tonight should be windy and dry, down around 40 degrees. For tomorrow, a lovely day. Sunshine still breezy, up around 57 degrees. Red Sox put Nathan Navaldi on the mound tonight as the Sox welcome the Blue Jays' 7-10 game time. The Bruins are on the road in St. Louis to face the Blues as the teams wind down their regular season. 48 degrees now in Boston at 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org and the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, founded by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, inviting you to the third annual National Anti-Racist Book Festival on Saturday, April 30th, to engage virtually in a full day of anti-racist dialogue that will educate, challenge, and inspire. Tickets at antiracistbookfest.bu.edu.